Hi, I'm Zhang Mei, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China. Each episode, we visit a different destination in China with a special guest. And when we say a destination, it can be as big as a province, or sometimes as small as a village, or sometimes it may be a field of study, or simply a way of life. Today, our guest is existential wellness counselor Michelle Mope Anderson. Now, the reason I invited Michelle is because I feel like she's my spiritual partner in travel, exploring this sort of unique part of China, and I just sort of fell in love with the the way her eyes were looking at Yunnan and the area that I love. So we're really going to trade notes. And before we go there, let me tell you a little bit about Michelle. Michelle has master's degrees in counseling, spirituality, and political science. As well as a doctorate in ministry, focusing on reconciliation and the arts. We'll get there as well. Right now, Michelle is joining us from Beijing, but in normal times, she has a split residence between Stockholm, Sweden, and Beijing, China. Michelle is also an avid traveler, and we're proud to say she's been on, I think, a, a couple of Wild China trips. Well, we'll start somewhere there. And Michelle is particularly interested and well versed in the history of missionaries in China, which is the area we're going to talk about. And she has traced the roots herself and visited many of these、um, remaining Catholic structures and communities that are still there today. And the communities there are very, very active. So this is the area we are going to focus on, and just some of you don't know, this is the same area that inspired Wild China. That's why we're going there. So welcome, Michelle. Thank you very much, May. I am so grateful for the work that you do because it allows me to do the work that I do.、So、fantastic,、grateful. fantastic. You're wonderful. So let's start with the area that you recently traveled to, or the past one or two trips in this corner of Yunnan that has really, you know, spurred this communication between you and me. <laughs> Tell us about the trip. Well, I had wanted to travel up the New River for several years, and everyone told me, "Oh, you can't. You really can't get there because it's not developed for travel at all." And I had heard that there were many Catholic churches along the border to Myanmar, following up this river, and I was just absolutely determined that there had to be a way to do it. And yeah, maybe it wasn't so easy. It was more work for you than it was for me.、Um, <laughs> But organizing a driver and not only a guide but a translator for for the guide who was a, a speaker of of Tibetan and and local languages and and we'll get to I guess to that story later too. But as I understand it, he learned Chinese, he learned Mandarin because of you, May. <laughs> I'm honored. Yes. <laughs> so we started at the base of the the New River in Baoshan, and we moved our way. A village by village, going north, to reach this area called Dimalu, where this guide, who's really an engineer and and self-taught historian, Alu, took us to his home, where his he grew up, and where his father grew up, and where his grandfather grew up, which Alu has now made into a wonderful little guest house. Not only for travelers from far away, but even 
the locals seemed to stop in there. When we were there, his living room was a gathering place for, for people from the community. Fantastic. Uh, it was something special. Yeah. So let, let me back up for some of our audience who've never been to China. This area we're talking about definitely is not on the China 101 first time China itinerary at all. Michelle lives in Beijing, so she probably has been to the Great Wall, I don't know, a dozen times. And the area is way down southwest in the province called Yunnan. That's where I grew up. And further from the capital city of Kunming, which is the capital city of Yunnan, go westwards. There, there is this one river flowing from north to south and then west. That's the new river goes into Myanmar. And it's also called the Sawan River. It's one of the three rivers that sort of all cut through Yunnan. And from Sawan River, one more river to the east of that river, parallel, is the Mekong that comes down and then further sort of curves around and exits at the southern edge of Yunnan through Vietnam, that area. And then further to the east of the Mekong, also parallel, is the Yangtze River. So the three rivers, the Yangtze River will eventually turn north and then cuts the border between Yunnan and Sichuan and go out east. So these three rivers are squeezed together really, really close. I'm talking about in geographical formation, right? Forming these deep mountains or valleys and uh, snow-covered peaks. And the communities living here are just sort of spectacular. Mm -hmm. For any anthropologist going to this area, you'll find Lisu who practice, I think they're Christians, right? The Tibetans that Mm -hmm. we're talking about, pockets Mm -hmm. of Catholic Tibetans. And then there are the Buddhist Tibetans and there are also Muslims living in this area. So really the, the book described in sort of the almost fictionary uh, Lost Horizon, James Hilton's book, literally exists, right? Yes, exactly. And it's it's a funny thing too, because, you know, in the mid-1600s, this place was written about as paradise. And those very rivers that you're talking about were assumed to come from a massive lake, which never really existed. But yet, because it was so clear in the minds of these Baroque thinkers that this was paradise and it must stem from a lake somewhere, they started to put it into maps and the maps began spreading around the world just on the assumption that if Martino Martini wrote this, it must be true. And so if Joseph Stocklin wrote this, it also must be true. And so they started affirming one another, which is, I guess, why in a good podcast, people do fact-checking these days. (laughs) No one did their fact-checking to see what was the original source. And when you travel in the area, it's, it also, it's, it feels so clear that this must be paradise because it's like three seasons of springtime and flowers and fauna from all over the world that I have experienced in Hawaii, for example, Mm-hmm. Um, and other parts of Asia are all growing right there. Mm. So it does seem like 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 a paradise. 
You know, that's fascinating. That's why I, this note trading is, is fantastic. Because I didn't know these, there were these ancient writings from 1600s. And so this, this lake, they did not know. It's a frozen lake called the Himalayas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or they thought it was called Lake Kia. Or actually, the, it's the area that is Lake Kia, which I am guessing people might have mistakenly assumed was the source of the rivers. The source. Yeah. yeah. And that's what a journey is all about. It's like going to the source. You know, why am I interested in all of this? The depth of yeah. my being and connection. And so it's like connecting with something that is greater than ourselves surrounding us, these magnificent and powerful mountains. They are literally moving mountains, as you probably know, May. It's a yeah. geographically, um, it's a very active region. There are there are fissures and fault lines all across there. And so lots of debates about building dams along the mm. New River and also along the Mekong. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you first become interested in this area? I want to know about that. Well, I think that actually started when I got to China. Yes, I was doing a bit of teaching for the Beijing Center. And um, I was invited to take a group of university students from North and South America around Yunnan for a couple of weeks. And that just uh, whet my appetite for the for the region and for the many cultures, which I had no idea about the, the Lisu and the Su. And so we traveled village to village. And that was my introduction to Yunnan. And also, I saw these incredible Catholic churches, particularly in Dali, and uh, learned about the history of the tea and horse trade, but also the coffee trade, how coffee came to this region with French missionaries, and that they have also a thriving coffee culture, which is important to uh, to me as, as a European or Westerner. My husband's a Swede, so we drink a lot of coffee in this house. And, and, and one more thing. Wine, 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 wine. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) The wine culture. So for me, this was, um, it was like going back to my childhood. One of the questions that was suggested to me when we were planning for this was, was this question of, you know, what got you interested in the missionaries? So I come from an Italian American immigrant family and my grandfather made wine in his bathtub uh, I suppose like his father and grandfather did in their little village in, in Southern Italy. And going back to Yunnan was like going into my grandmother's kitchen with my grandfather making, trying to make wine in the bathtub behind the kitchen. So the flavors, the intense flavors, you know, the spices, the, the peppers, the roasted peppers hanging in the windows. Um, was like going back to my childhood. So it was like going very far away from home to find myself and come home again. Even patterns and colors, the brightness of the colors and, and yes, the smiles, the joy. There's music in the air in Yunnan, like there's music in the air in Italy. And I love that. That is the most amazing thing I've heard describing Yunnan. Because very often, uh, there was once I think I traveled to Corsica, Mm -hmm. not far from Southern Italy, right? And 
I ran into this old man who had all sorts of charcuterie, sort of smoked ham and things hung yeah. in his wooden cabin. And I just finished the hike. I came down. I was exhausted. I sat down. He offered me these cut meats and a glass of wine. It's completely non-Chinese, but I felt completely at home, which is exactly the same sort of like I've come so far from China. And yet the smile, the way they have this close relationship with the land, the way they eat, the way they have developed relationships with people, something's magical. Absolutely. And that farm to table experience is something that I really appreciated, especially in Alu's home, his guest house, but his home that he opened to us, sharing meals with his family around the table. And they were literally farm to table, garden to table. I could look out the window and see where the zucchini grew and uh, where he collected the eggs right outside the window. And I think that also says something that is so important about the travel experience, but also about the spiritual journey to to go more simply, to tread more lightly. Yes, we did travel by car. We could never have made it up the river without the help of the driver and and the four-wheel drive vehicle, that's for sure. But that we don't find ourselves... In fact, we are left so hungry when we go to the big hotel buffet um, Mm. and have the whatever French toast and sausage that we probably could have made at home. (laughs) But when we travel and we find something like the pancetta that becomes the Yunnan ham, we find some core values that are without words, that engage our senses engage our taste buds and our our eye for beauty. The aesthetic experience is so powerful and it needs to be revived, especially it needs to be revived after COVID. When we've had literally our aesthetic experiences wiped away, people have lost their sense of taste Yeah, and haven't had a chance to get out and see beauty. A lot of us have been really cooped up in high-rise buildings and apartments and indoors and just the chance to get out and um you know smell a plumeria a plumeria growing in yunnan it was like someone put a lay around my neck and said aloha yeah yeah that's great that's great i will tell you a little bit about how i met alo but tell us about this other trip on the other side of the mountain that you also took separately right yeah. So I actually gathered together a group of friends, I could say, who who um, were also interested in exploring this Catholic history along the Mekong River. That also is not an easy journey, but it was a little bit easier because that is developed a bit more, primarily, I think, by Well China, in fact, traveling from Lichang to Shangri-La. And of course, I was so curious about Shangri-La and this idea of paradise uh, in Shangri-La. And I read the, the very famous book entitled The, the Lost, Lost Horizon. Horizon. Yes, The Lost Horizon. And because of my work, I teach people how to breathe properly, how to rest and relax as a part of finding meaning and going to the core of our being. I had um, had trained in the Tibetan exercises, these movements that were actually brought by Christian missionaries to Europe in the late 1800s. So I was very curious about pulling all of this 
together. The, the story of the missionaries and the story of the conversions in that area. And so I followed an itinerary and then was able to add in my own interests going up the Mekong. And the destination was Shangri-La with a stop in Sichuan, which is a, a wine region and also very famous or famous among those who are deeply interested yes. in Tibetan Catholicism. But as a part of that trip, we were on our way up and we stopped in Tashing for a night. And Tashing is already known for its Feng Shui. It's a very beautiful niche in a mountain, in a hillside. And the innkeeper did not speak a word of English. One of, or two of my fellow travelers are speakers of Chinese. So they were able to engage in this very deep conversation. And, and you know, he was pouring tea for us and then it got chilly outside. So we went in the house and, and then he ran to, um, to another house in the village to, to pick up a bag of dried walnuts. And so here we were cracking walnuts from the 100-year-old tree that was growing outside. And, and he said, I'm assuming he said something like, well, if you're interested in Catholic churches, he said all of this in Chinese, uh-huh. follow the river for about a half hour, 45 minutes, and you'll come to a very historic church from the late 1800s, like, like 1870. So the next day we did that and and we got lost, which was wonderful. And um, we found our way down to the river edge where there were a few farmers with their water buffaloes. And uh, our our guide, Tashi, at that time, mm-hmm. he he asked, I there's like a church somewhere around here. Can you tell us where it where it is? And and do you know if anybody has the key? And the the man with the basket on his back, he's kind of stood up and he pointed to himself, the man that was in the fields down with his wife was the keeper of the church in the village and he had the key. And so we breezed by the breath of his water buffalo and we found our way through these really winding village streets with his him carrying his uh, spring garlic and his basket on his back and garlic bouncing. And so he took us to this incredible little church built in 1870 by Swiss and French missionaries. And it was just really um, a pearl, a real find. Mm -hmm. I can share a little bit of that story. So yeah, it came to life that these these French and, and Swiss men, you know, how they had gotten there because the journey wasn't easy and we had a car, but they were on donkeys and walking and hiking. So they built this church in 1870 to help the villagers. And it was an extremely poor community. Imagine a ravine with very little access. And the man with the spring garlic on his back opened for us, not only the the very beautiful little church but he also opened the rooms on the side where the photographs were kept of the missionaries. And they were, you know, withered and dog-eared and kept in frames. And so I just started snapping photos and I asked if I could. And he said, yes, of course. So, so standing on the top of a wobbly folding chair, taking pictures. And the stories of these missionaries, when I left that room and I walked out into this incredibly beautiful vineyard that they had planted 
the vineyard that they had planted for the wine for the church. It touched me so deeply. And then the keeper said that this church is actually supposed to be um, to t- be taken away because it's too close to the water and, and it's been deemed that it, it would be dangerous for the church and for the village to, to remain here. So they were, in the next year or two, they're going to be moving the village and moving the church. And so these oh. walls from 1870. So what does that mean to move a church? You know, I don't know, maybe they take the altar or maybe they take some of the small statues or something like that. But all of this risks being lost. Is it because of the hydropower station that's being built there? I suppose so, yes. I know it's because it's of the rerouting of the river that the water level is going to most likely rise. Oh. Um, so, and and I have, you know, in my circle of international friends here, the, you know, friends that are engineers, and I've talked to them about this. And, and they actually are advising the government not to build dams because of the earthquake danger in the area. That's It's really seismic. Um, mm. Both the the new and the Mekong. Anyway, I left that little church and all of those photographs, and um, I can barely even pronounce it. But it's Shaoweishi. Uh, Shaoweishi is the village. <laughs> and yeah. um, I started having these dreams at night, not at all frightening dreams, but very friendly dreams of right from the photos. Mm. The faces of these missionaries was coming out one by one and smiling at me and raising their eyebrows, kind of like asking me, what are you going to do? What are you going to do next? What do you feel called or moved to do with all of this, Michelle? And then I'd wake up thinking, I got to do something. So I've got to go back. I've got to learn the story. And that was what brought me back to the region. Mm -hmm. Going on to Sijong was very moving and beautiful too. And the the chant of the women um, chanting the rosary. So chanting the same prayer that we pray all around the world as Catholics, but chanting it in Tibetan. Um, That's still, that rhythm rings in my ears and it it beats in my heart because Mm -hmm. it's rhythmic with the heartbeat. It's Mm -hmm. magnificent. From there, we went on up to to Shangri-La over those incredible mountains, Mm -hmm. over that mountain pass. So that was like traveling a couple of seasons in a few hours and um, generations and centuries and faiths as well, just in the course of a few hours crossing over that massive mountain pass where we find Shangri-La. Thank you for sharing that story. You just, your description of the bouncing baskets of walnuts just completely, completely took me home. Um, and and I feel like, okay, now I'm ready to, to share the almost, I, I consider the origin story of Wild China. And that's what, that's why I feel so close to your route of exploration in Yunnan. This was back in 1998. <laughs> it sounds so long ago when I left my consulting career at McKinsey and went back to Yunnan. And I was reading up on Yunnan history. I just somehow I was curious. It was like after traveling around the world, coming back to discover the most beautiful place in my backyard, right? So, But I knew so little about it. So I started reading the Tihuas Trail that goes all the way from Puar to, to Tibet and all these pockets of Catholic Tibetans, which completely took me by surprise. I'm not religious by any means, but 
uh, I feel like I'm spiritual, but not religious. I think there's, I want to talk to you about that as well in a little bit. And so I was intrigued by these various trading routes or footpaths that traversing both along the river valley and traversing, connecting the rivers. So I went all the way to Nujiang. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's where Aloha is. And then I met these friends who were doctors. He was a doctor of medicine, San Frontier, mm-hmm. Doctors Without Borders. And yeah. he said, oh, I'm going to this village and maybe you can hike over to, to Tsudong from here. So I went along and the village back then had no electricity where you were. Yeah. At. yeah and Aloha and a few guys were squatting in front of the village square. And I said, well, anybody can walk me sort of show me the way to Tsuzhong. And he raised his hand. I looked at him. He was just this friendly smile, big white pearly teeth, and just really, you can trust him. Don't you feel that way? Yes, I, absolutely. Yeah, so I saw his smile and I'm like, okay, I can, I can do this. And he took me to his home. I met his wife, his mother. And for them, it's one day hiking from the new river <laughs> to the main con. It took me four days. <laughs> <laughs> took me four days. But on the way, like I, I went to Bai Han Luo Church and Alu was just showing me how the locals live, the way they pray, the 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 singing, the the hymnals in the in the church was just so beautiful. I couldn't understand anything, but it it touched me. And then along the way, he was the best nature guide. He would tell me about this herb, that sheep, goat, um, you know, what is what do they do on, on this trail? And he was perfect at providing services. He would, you know, set up my tent, go prepare dinner, and make his own bed about 200 yards from me on a bed of hay. Yes, you know, exactly, he, he, like the shepherds, right? Yes. He would just sleep there with a sheet on top of the hay and the sheet on top of him, but keeping me safe at a distance, right? Mm-hmm. Without feeling any way threatened. And he accompanied me for four days. And I said, this is the guide I want Wild China Guides to be. This was yeah. the model. The language, Chinese wasn't great. In, he had no English, but the, I don't know, the smile, the service aptitude, the charm of personality, the problem-solving skills and knowledge of local area transcends any barrier, right? And so after that, I said, this was my first product. So I took pictures of that trail that became Wild China. (laughs) So I'm so happy you you got to the source and met Alua 20 years later. That is so beautiful. And really, he does credit you because he described to me the way, or through the translator, the way that you could glide between languages and communicate with the doctors in the Doctors Without Borders, and then turn to him and communicate. But you clearly have a gift of communication. And he thought that he would like to be able to do that. And so thanks to you, as he tells the story, thanks to you, he Uh really began to study Chinese. And then from there, an interest in in learning some English. And he does speak some English. So as we were walking around, uh, you know, first at the dinner table, he would would ask if we liked you like, or, and then the language became more nuanced that the dinner is yummy. The dinner is yummy. (laughs) Yes, the dinner is yummy. (laughs) Um, And then walking with him, uh, you know, walking in the hillsides and walking to these churches, 
we could distinguish between a high mountain and my very tall husband. And then he asked me, it was quiet and I could tell that he had something that he really wanted to say and he kept trying to formulate it and, and find the right words. And then he turned to me and with, with this perfect conviction, he said, do you have yak home in your house? <laughs> do I have a yak in my house? No, no, I don't have a yak. I have a dog, but I don't have a yak. I would, and and could I even identify a yak because I could barely identify the difference between a cow and a bull? So, and then I asked him very honestly about the difference between like water buffaloes and cows and bulls, and and come to find out, I wasn't so dumb after all in my lack of knowledge about nature because there's all of this crossbreeding apparently that goes on between these animals, and then they all sort of grow to look a little bit like a little bit like one another. But as I've discovered in other parts of the world, there's nothing like the value of a good farm animal. So to have a good water buffalo or a good yak is uh, maybe even more important than a good wife in some places. <laughs> yeah. But Aloy is just so gifted in making you, you know, learn something without feeling like, you know, I'm sort of lacking anyway, right? He's just yeah. so charming, right? So I want to ask you, go back to your roots. I love the way you tell stories, but there's something about wellness or well-being counseling. So tell me what, what does it mean to be an existential wellness counselor? Well, existential wellness is really about going to the core of our being, and rediscovering meaning and purpose. It's about rediscovering the gifts and the talents that we were born with and cultivated early in our lives and things that brought us joy. And somehow in modern society, we, we lose our way from time to time and we, you know, we follow things that we think we should and we kind of forget about our gifts and talents. And also our family stories. So our family stories are so important in our process of healing and discovering places of trauma in our lives. And so helping people to reconnect and engage their senses in a deeply meaningful way, I would say a spiritual way, because for some people it is, uh, for some people that is uh, what leads us into to spiritual direction or faith formation. But for, for a secular individual who has burnout, for example, existential wellness counseling is very useful in finding our way back home, back to who I am, who I was created to be. So it's those deeper meaning of life questions. And it goes into career counseling and family or couples counseling as well, finding our way to the people that we are meant to be with, engaging our senses to do that as well. Not just looking in our in our financial plans and material aspirations, but deeper meaning. Do you bring this with you on this journey when you have a couple of guests yeah. with you? How do you put that yeah. in practice on the road? Exactly. It's more than just the practice on the road, but it's the visualizing in advance of the journey that this is this would be something really meaningful for this person. For example, I, I wanted to do um family stories of Fujian trip, which we had all planned out, but because of COVID, we had to cancel the trip just Mm. a few months ago. But 
traveling is very often a way of sort of holding up a mirror on our own family stories. We find things that remind us, and usually it is these sensory experiences of a wonderful scent that reminds us of our childhood or the crunching of leaves or the feeling of the bed sheets or waking up with the sound of chickens or roosters Mm -hmm. or water running. That is the sound of the ocean. Originally growing up in California, the sound of the ocean is really meaningful to me. And so when I hear water, I feel refreshed and revived. And Mm. that begins the place of the journey. And that the great thing about these trips is that a lot of it is done in silence. It's not um, when you're traveling with a really small group, you're you're walking together and you're you're maybe talking together, but there's respect and place for silence. And that's something that I loved also in these churches that Alu brought us to. He never once said, okay, we're in a hurry or okay, you've got 15 minutes. I it was raining out. And so I don't know how long I spent in the pews of the church in Dimalu, just admiring praisings, you know, sitting with the crucifix and and all of these symbols that are so meaningful to me as a Catholic and and again to my in my from my childhood, finding them again, sitting and being in that presence, and then just leaving and feeling quite transformed and inspired transformed by inspiration. Yeah. And I think that also connects back with the history of those missionaries that that's what's important to me today to not forget that history. That if we lose this, we lose our way forward and we lose our depth. We lose our rootedness. Pull a tree up, you lose the roots. And we lose the things that really give us life and meaning. And so I think on these trips, it's really important to to realize that these men and women, also very many women, um, Mm. they made an incredible difference in the lives of people in this region and connected them with a broader tradition, a global tradition. They connected them with something in in Europe and something that had also traveled to the, the U.S. In the States, I remember Mother Cabrini. There are Cabrini hospitals and Cabrini centers, especially on the East Coast. And Frances Cabrini had always wanted to come to China. And like me, she ended up as an immigrant to America and she took care of my extended immigrant roots in America. So going to Yunnan kind of also feels like I I did something for her. Mm. And knowing that these missionaries, they made a difference and they left something for us here for these people and for for us and they connected us and we don't want to lose that connection we don't want to be cut off by a virus or cut off by by a set of mountains oh my goodness yeah um yeah. but i i completely understand when you were saying uh i recently was back in china as, as you knew with the changing infrastructure, one is able to go very quickly. Within a day, you can go all the way very deep, all the way to Shangri-La and get into these villages. And I start hiking. And it's almost like my roots were just irrigated again. You know, they were all of a sudden drawing up these oxygen, nutrition, oxygen from the Mm -hmm. ground, from the soil of Yunnan. And immediately you feel like, Ah, I'm home. <laughs> this is sort of, 
incredible connectedness that's that's long overdue <laughs> with the yeah. virus gap. And I hope more of us can can have that feeling of connection again soon, right? Um, yeah. I know I was just going to mention that that was also sort of the alternative experience. You know, you can go th- literally through the mountains. You can drive on highways now through the tunnels and you can take the speed train, but it's so important to take the slow road, to take the small road for the experience of it. And that's one of those unfortunate things, even with, with our work here in Beijing for my, particularly my husband, you know, you have, you have a week off or you have four days off, but if you can just give yourself those extra days to take the small way, and it's not just about the place and arriving, it's the journey there. And that was what was deeply moving about these, both of these trips along the, the New River and the, the Mekong. We took the slow way. You you spent a week in each place, right? Yeah, about a week on each of those trips. So, um, and maybe that was also not even long enough. It meant that we had to go back a couple of times and, and we are, May, planning for our next trip now back to Dali and to explore the coffee region and the history of the missionaries who planted the coffee plantations outside of Dali. Tell me about that, actually. Yeah. That, I, I don't know so enough that, about coffee that, and ca- the Catholic history in, in China. So people think that the churches are closed. They're not. If you get up early enough, you can go to Mass at 6.30 in the morning in Dali, for example. And since there's not so many people there, as when I was in Dali last, the priest invited me into a little cafe, which he runs there. And he had this incredible collection of coffee grinders from all over the world. And then he had these photos of the coffee growing in the region, in the area where he grew up. And he explained in very few words that it was French missionaries around 1870 that brought coffee to his village. So, and, and, and then after, after mass and after the, the coffee, which was like an espresso, we went and we had an incredible bowl of um, lamb soup for breakfast about <laughs> 7.30 in the morning um, with lots of noodles and lots of garlic. It was lots of chili. <laughs> lots of chili. It was, it was wonderful. So um, that's something that really impressed me about this region also, that it is very much alive. The faith is very much alive. They don't mm. see many foreigners, but um, their faith practices. There was water, for example, in the holy water font in the entrance to the church, which you don't find anywhere else in the world right now because of virus restrictions. So this, yeah, deep faith. I don't think that answered your question. I, I took it the way I wanted it to go. <laughs> no, perfect. Perfect. No, it's it's totally fine. But I want to, I want to actually get a couple of recommendations from you. I think you've done more readings about this history, uh, the Catholic influence in, in Yunnan, this whole Tibetan area. Any books you recommend? Yeah, actually, what I really recommend is going back to the diary of Evariste Regis Hook. It was written in 1870, I believe, or maybe even 1846. And it is the account of this region, which was carried to Europe and then printed and circulated. And I think it was also the basis for Lost Horizon because the descriptions are so very similar. I also really recommend going, not only reading Lost Horizon if you're going to Shangri-La, 
but definitely see the 1927 or 1936 version of the film, the old black and white, because it has so much more richness and depth and um, twists, twists of faith and fate as well. So follow those sources. And then, yeah, those are the two that I really recommend. And it is, it's fun and interesting to read Lost Horizon from an existential perspective. You know, the, they're going in search of meaning. And they're very much like people like ourselves today, in fact. You know, a diplomat traveling and a journalist and maybe a teacher. Um, and their roles shift in place. So it becomes like biblical stories through time up to, to the people that we are today. Yeah, no, I, I would totally recommend rereading Lost Horizon. It's it's fantastic. And we will link, I'll get the, the names from you for the first diary, and we'll put this link in the in the show notes for our audience. I think we are somewhat running a little bit short on time. I, I can chat about Catholic Tibetan areas forever. And, and, and Yunnan <laughs> forever. <laughs> Any advice for um, our travelers who may be interested in traveling there? I mean, honestly, I'd go back and spend a week at Alo's house. Yeah, yeah. But I any advice from same. you? Well, travel light, of course. Travel as light as possible. It's rough terrain, and be open. So be open. And when I say be open, I would give my existential wellness advice: travel on the exhale so that you can take it all in when you get there. Exhale, slow down, and then open your senses to everything that is happening around you as you inhale. Hmm. And also to be a bit quiet so that we take time to listen to the nature around us and to what is moving inside of us while we're traveling. Hmm. And it's not so much about getting in as much as possible, but going as deep as possible in each of the places where we are. So Mm. to stop, to pause, to engage our senses, and then that builds this incredible sense of memory, which we share with the people around us. Not only when we're back home, but with the ones that have come before us and the ones that will come after us. So to go with open senses. And a sense of quietude, I think, is really important. Thank you. Beautifully said. And I would add to that, particularly knowing that we also serve an international audience who normally would have two weeks for China. I think this is particularly important. What Michelle was talking about is China is so big. Right now, no one can go there. except I'm a citizen, so I'm lucky to be able to get in. But when travel resumes, I think it's really important. If you have two weeks, take Beijing as the sort of access entry or exit stop or Shanghai. Take one of them or enter into Beijing out of Shanghai but fly straight down to one of these areas and spend Mm -hmm. a good week there. Mm -hmm. You probably will have a couple of boxes on your, you know, must-see sites unchecked, but I think the trip overall will be much more memorable. 
mm-hmm. like what Michelle was describing, right? Take it slow. Mm-hmm. And second piece of advice that I would have is do what I did back then is walk. Mm-hmm. Not only slow it down, not, well, take a high-speed train to, to access it, but once you're there, drop all the modern sort of transportation, just get on your feet and walk to these villages or join the locals riding a tractor to explore the Xiaowei church, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, yeah. Absolutely. I can't wait. Even just talking about this trip, I feel like I'm ready to exhale and <laughs> ready to take in Yunnan again. Well, I can't wait either. And that's why we'll be making contact shortly as soon as the Olympics are over to plan a trip for for the coffee region, for Dali. I'm anxious to bring my husband to that area. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you, Michelle, for taking the time to chat with me and to share your experience in this beautiful region of China. My pleasure. Happy New Year and happy trails. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the China Travel Podcast, produced by Wild China Travel and hosted by me, Wild China founder Zhang Mei. For every episode, you can find a summary with timestamps and a list of resources on our website, wildchina.com. If you enjoy this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Wild China Travel or me personally at Wild China May. That is M E I. Thank you and see you next time.